often repeated thing I hear from mums who did struggle to bond for whatever reason that might be, but I still love my baby dearly. That love is, is unquestionable without any question at all. What happened is the element of the illness has affected her ability to have those emotional and cognitive resources to be able to have that interaction through no fault of the mother at all um, and, and understandably the mum will feel intensely guilty about the inability to be able to bond. But let's un understand a little bit more about what perinatal and maternal mental illnesses are and what they do. Uh, they rob the individual of that ability to have that headspace, be able to do these things, to be able to have the emotional resources, to be able to have that cognitive um, awareness of what's going on. And it's because of the illness that that has been taken away. So sometimes when a mum is so unwell, she simply hasn't got those resources to do that. So there's very little she could probably do. And that's why we're here to help. Having a baby is meant to be the most joyful time of your life. But for many mums and dads, it can be the hardest and at times the darkest of places. Welcome to Blue Mondays, the podcast for anyone struggling with parenting. Dr. Mayers is an academic psychologist based at Bournemouth University, specialising in mental health, particularly in the perinatal period for mothers, fathers and their families. He also conducts some work with young people's mental health. Andy actively campaigns locally and nationally with the aim of improving mental health services. He serves on several local and national advisory groups for maternal mental illness, including groups that influence NHS policy changes. Andy represents organisations and mental health charities nationally and across Dorset, including Make Birth Better, Peppy Health, Dorset Mind and Dorpip. Welcome to Blue Mum Days, Andy. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Lovely introduction. Thank you. Ah. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I know you've got a very busy schedule, so we really appreciate you taking time out. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and why you got into this particular field? Yeah, I kind of came into it by accident in many ways, just as it was. I mean, it was getting on for 20 years ago now. Just after I got my PhD, I just happened to go my first postdoctoral job if you like happened to go and work for the mother and baby unit just outside Southampton to do some research with them and it's the first time I'm, I've heard of postnatal depression but I've never heard of all these other illnesses and I kind of sort of as soon as I got involved with all that work I thought goodness me this is a hugely important area and it's never left me I've been working in it ever since in one way or another. You're a father yourself, or grandfather now, if you don't mind me saying. Absolutely. Did you have any experience directly or indirectly with your family? Uh, not Certainly not with the children, because I, although I am uh, open bracket, uh, sort of speech marks, whatever you call it, father to four, uh, biologically, I'm father to none. I, 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 I sort of acquired them, if you like. Through, through marriages and what have you, and the stepfather. But with, with all of them, I've been in their lives ever, ever since they were tiny. So I've been their father, really, their father figure. But certainly as they're now all adults, well into their 30s, all of them, and they've become parents themselves. So I've been involved very much with the birth of their children. And uh, we've now got the nine grandchildren. So uh, as well as having worked in this field for 20 years in the last sort of 10 15 years or so I've seen them all arrive I've seen the, all the difficulties I've seen the experiences of the parents going through it the fathers witnessing stuff it kind of motivated me still further and so what what is your sort of key area at the moment in terms of of working within the perinatal mental health field I think it it's, it's something that really well other than fathers which we can come to I think if we look at it generally um, although we campaigned for a long time to get more mother and baby units and to upskill the NHS, and that's worked, that really has, it's, it's been wonderful. It, it's become a mission, if you like, in the last few years or so, to look at the sort of community more. Uh, those mums and dads who might not meet the criteria for being referred to the more intensive services, and yet they're still being considerably overlooked. 
So that's my, my priority is to get more support for those parents who might otherwise go off the radar. They could be sent back to a GP or they might be overlooked and we need to make sure they're supported. For anybody listening that doesn't actually know what a mother and baby unit does or, or who it serves, can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So, so I mean, uh, you know, we're focusing on mums here. Now, before, not that long ago, maybe five, six, seven years ago, um, there were just a handful of these units across the country. Essentially, when, when a mother is diagnosed with a serious mental health problem, a, 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 a really entrenched postnatal depression, and particularly things like postpartum psychosis, maternal OCD, where the mother's really unwell, she needs to have some kind of psychiatric care, probably inpatient care. And until recently, um, she would have been admitted without a child. Now, it might be argued that, well, she's surely not in a fit state to look after a child, and that's the right thing. But it's not, because if we can have the baby in the hospital with her, although the baby is properly cared for when mum's not so well, we can also use the baby to, it, that sounds the wrong way of putting it in many ways, we, we, we can focus on the benefits of having the baby nearby um, to improve the interaction, to use the bonding, to use the love and to, to kind of um, help mum on her way because she's got her baby with her. And, and that, that, that's phenomenal. I mean, related to the mother and baby units as well, we also have extensive you know, community perinatal mental health teams who will come and visit mum in the community too. I'm a member of sort of certain PND uh, groups on Facebook and I know I, I saw one with a, a new newly diagnosed mum who'd been advised to go to a mother and baby unit and she was obviously quite worried about this and what it meant in terms of her relationship with her baby and what would happen there. Is there anything you can say to sort of reassure mums who are facing a stay in a mother and baby unit? Absolutely. I think one of the key things, you know, obviously we want mum to get well, but one of the better ways of helping her get well is to help her interact with her baby. So they bring the baby in, they start focusing on, on it, you know, helping her through sort of engagement, um, through looking at the positive things about the interaction with the baby. And it, it's kind of then she will feel probably less guilty as well about being in the hospital without a baby her baby's on hand and it's it's better for all parties because the baby also has mum on hand so it's, it works beautifully this brings us very neatly onto the thousand and one critical days because this is a really important piece of research work and I'd, I'd love to ask you a bit more about that but it's looking at how the parental mental health actually can go on to have quite a significant effect on the on the baby in the early stages of their life absolutely i mean let's define those 1001 days it's a period of pregnancy through to the child's second birthday and there is no other crucial time in an infant's and a child's a human being's life than that period because if there are some complications perhaps with the mother through the pregnancy or just after the the baby's being born where she's not able to engage in the way that she'd like to be able to engage with no fault of her own it's bound to have an impact on that child we know that the most crucial period of building that bond that attachment and all those developmental things that happen in those first few years and indeed we know there's no other time than the brain developing in the way in which it does in those first two years so it's crucial now, mums will often feel guilty about that because they feel, oh gosh, not only have I been unwell and having an impact on my family and my, my home life and my partner and all of that, now I'm affecting the child too. It's not about that. It's about understanding that if we don't fix the problems that she's experienced with her mood, her anxiety, her understanding reality, all of those things that she might be experiencing, then it's going to bound to have an impact on that child. And we look at ways through the 1001 critical days of improving that relationship and getting mum well. That's a, a really good explanation. Thank you. And I, I think it's really important to emphasise the point you made about mum feeling guilty, but it's through no fault of her own. 
And if you're going through this and experiencing a problem with disconnection or bonding issues with your child, you're finding it hard to bond. It is absolutely not your fault. This is not something that you've brought on yourself. It's not through something that you have done or that you have not done. It is not your fault. It is just part of the illness. And if you listen to other episodes as part of this Blue Mum Days podcast, for example, with Liz Wise, episode one, you will find that actually just because you have a problem bonding with your baby in the early days does not mean to go on. That's going to affect your relationship going forward. That is often not the case and you will not scar them for life. But if I'm right in saying this, uh, Andy, this is about getting the early intervention and support in early while we can sort of look more holistically as the family and mm. and see how we can. Yeah. And this is precisely the point. I think one of the things that came out of the thousand one critical days was the parent, the, what is now known as the parent infant foundation. It was initially the parent infant partnership, but it's now the parent infant foundation. And through that, a number of charities were set up across the country that had the name PIP after them. So there was um, XPIP, um, um, OXPIP, uh, various others. And I'm a, a trustee for DORPIP, so Dorset Parent Infant Partnership. So our focus is on using ways, therapeutic interventions for the mother-infant relationship. And now it's also the father and any other parenting figure about rebuilding those bonds, about understanding the relationship, about giving the parents the toolkits to negotiate that transition into parenthood. Do we know what creates bonding issues? Because it doesn't affect everybody who has postnatal depression. So for example, myself, I, I never, I was very lucky that I didn't have bonding issues with my son, Stanley. But I know it can happen to some parents and there is a huge stigma attached to it that you don't love your baby or that you didn't want your baby. And that's not the case. It's absolutely not the case. And I think often repeated thing I hear from mums who did struggle to bond for whatever reason that might be. But I still love my baby dearly. That love is, it is unquestionable without any question at all. What happened? is the element of the illness has affected her ability to have those emotional and cognitive resources to be able to have that interaction. And the crucial thing here, um, even in the most basic psychology or people who study child development or go on to be teachers, they all learn all about this John Bowlby. And Bowlby was all about those first few years of, it, of the interaction between the mother and child. And it's all about, the, the, if you like, the mental, uh, the mental model within that child's uh, mind about the way they work, the, 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 their, work, their world works, if you like. So essentially, um, if they are, or if, if the infant perceives the fact that they are being loved, their crises are being resolved, mum's available, all those sorts of things, then everything's fine with the world. If for any reason that's broken, then they will have a completely different view of the world. And it will be one of not having their crises uh, resolved. Mum isn't there for her, for the, for the child. And, and that's at a very, very basic level, if you like. And what so from that, then a child could potentially develop in a way that we might see in later life where they're either striving to get attention because they never got attention or completely withdrawing because there's no point trying to do so because they never get any attention so those are the ultimate things that could happen but of course if we intervene early and help mum and the baby interact then those things won't happen that's fascinating what you're saying about the effect on the baby because I remember there was this big debate about controlled crying when Stanley was tiny and I was reading all this advice or being told this advice about don't go to your baby when they cry because you're you're creating a rod for your own back. And I remember sort of trying it once and I just found it. It went against every instinct in my body to not go to my baby when he was crying. It's it's mm -hmm. for me, it was a very physical need that I needed to 
mm. attend to him and it felt so wrong to me to to do that mm. do you have a sort of an opinion on on that school i i'm certainly aware of it and i can imagine how deeply distressing that would be one of the key things is with what i do well to directly answer you no i don't because one of the things i do is that i bring parties together my expertise is mainly in maternal mental health so i don't know very much about mental issues about controlled crying about sleep and all those sorts of things but i know people who do and when i come across somebody who needs that kind of um, in help then i know exactly where i can send them and i leave those experts to answer those questions. And with regards to bonding, if anybody's listening now who is struggling with that, what advice would you give them? Are there certain things that can start helping that they could implement themselves without needing further help? I think it really depends. I think we've got to remember, you, you, you put it very well at the beginning and I alluded to it as well, it's through no fault of the mother at all um, and, and understanding being a mum will feel intensely guilty about the inability to be able to bond. But let's un understand a little bit more about what perinatal and maternal mental illnesses are and what they do. Uh, they rob the individual of that ability to have that headspace, to be able to do these things, to be able to have the emotional resources, to be able to have that cognitive um, awareness of what's going on. And it's because of the illness that that is being taken away. So sometimes when a mum is so unwell, she simply hasn't got those resources to do that. So there's very little she could probably do. And that's why we're here to help. What a parent-infant relationship specialist will do is look at ways to, to start working on that. And we're often told by these specialists that actually, in terms of the patient, it's not the mum, it's not the baby, it's the relationship. And they find ways in which it's mutually beneficial to both the mother and the baby to improve those relationships. And that's how they work on it. In terms of what can a mother do, you know, if she does have those resources, I would strongly advise her to get in touch with similar organisations as DoorPip or whatever local organisation there is to help with that sort of thing on basic tips on how to start getting that engagement going. That's really, really good. And we'll have resources in the show notes so that you can look into what's in your area. Are there any things, because we, we often hear about this expected endorphin rush you get when you have your baby, that you're supposed to have this incredible rush of love. Yet, mm. I certainly never had that. And most of the people that I've spoken to with regards to this podcast also didn't have that. Is that something that's affected by hormones or the birthing process, trauma? It's quite possible. So, I mean, we know that within the first few days, I mean, if we look at this commonly used term, the baby blues, and it's a very real thing, the vast majority, if not all mums in one way or another, get this. So because what we've got is almost like a sea change of, of emotions and hormones. So all the pregnancy hormones are being pushed away. The mothering hormones are kicking in. Um, milk production doesn't happen immediately, not for a day or so, you know, two, two to three days. Um, the emotions are all over the place. There's uncertainty, there's tiredness. There might have been a traumatic birth. There may have been the need for some minor operation or, or more. And so there's an awful lot of things that are actually going on. And the brain hasn't really had a chance to catch up with, you know, this this sudden um, endorphin rush, if you like, the, um, it it's, it can often be a little delayed for some mums, absolutely. But you know, when it does come, it's like wow, you know, that love is there. I'm often asked, um, you know, what, what what's the difference between postnatal depression and depression for a, a woman of a similar age, similar background, except that she's not got a baby. Surely it's exactly the same. Well, it's not the same. And the reason why it's not the same is that the guilt that we probably see in most forms of depression for a new mum who gets postnatal depression, that guilt goes through the roof. And it's largely because of this good enough mum thing. It's about this whole thing about the societal image that 
having a baby's wonderful there's this rush of endorphins there's this rush of love and it's an incredible experience and how wonderful it is to be a mum and therein lies the problem because all of a sudden through no fault of her own she's feeling differently she the love's still there but she's finding it hard to bond she's finding it hard to focus she, her emotions are changing dramatically and she'll feel terribly guilty about that and and that's one of the major differences between postnatal depression and any other form of depression god mum guilt <laughs> there's nothing like mum guilt but also what you're saying really resonates with me because you do go through feelings of like feeling like a monster that you have moments where you feel like you want to run away or that you can't cope with it no matter how much you love your baby or how much you desperately wanted to be a mum there are times when you feel so overwhelmed that you just want to escape Mm. something that I've come across through these interviews but I'd love to know whether you've come across it as well is a sense of grief grieving the maternity that they thought they would have grieving the first year I mean I feel hideous saying this but the day Stanley was born whilst having him was the most incredible thing that ever happened to me and my husband it was the worst day of my life and the first year of my life with Stanley was the worst year of my life because of the severity of my postnatal depression and I did grieve that that time that I felt it it should have been this magical, wonderful period mm. of time. And that, I think that's part of it. I mean, let's not forget that, that um, grief and loss are all part of depression too. Now, of course, many of us will grieve for the loss of something or some, uh, you know, if we lose a loved one, and it can often be very difficult to differentiate, say, bereavement from depression. But it's when that, gets kind of out of context or long goes on for longer and and, and so forth but I certainly think there's a, there's a, a huge element within postnatal depression and any other form of maternal mental illness that is in a form of uh, if you like a, a sense of loss even if it's not grief certainly a sense of loss and one of the things we focus on that make birth better is you know often there's this perception that birth trauma is all about the stuff that goes wrong and about the you know potential loss of life to mother child and loss of blood all that sort of thing and although of course it is there's a lot more to it than that so a traumatic birth in a sense of um, it, how it's perceived if you like is literally how the mother will have perhaps um, experience birth differently than she 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 anticipated the actual postnatal period is different to what she anticipated and because of that it kind of mismatches the way that she she feels it ought to be and that kind of makes it even more complicated for her thank you and and we actually have uh, an interview with dr rebecca moore of make birth better which goes into birth trauma in, in greater detail but i think it is such an important thing to raise it makes me wonder andy what do you think is needed in the pregnancy or sort of pre-parenting arena that would help marry up expectations or make expectations more realistic so that there isn't this big juxtaposition of, of expectation versus reality? Yeah, I, I think you, in a sense you've answered your own question because I think uh, there's often a time where it, uh, cert- in some cases, um, not all of those scenarios are necessarily given to um, people through pregnancy, the mother and the father. Um, and it, it, in many ways, I think it would help if we were able to, we don't want to scare people either, but I think we need to manage those expectations, say, you know what, it can go wrong. And let's be frank, it can go wrong. And if it does go wrong, this is what we can do. These are the resources you can draw upon. And I think we do need to be more realistic at times, balancing against making people scared um, you know, of the pregnancy and, and becoming a mum. But, you know, we do need to have that balance. I think sort of, yeah, those are honest conversations. Um, you know, I remember the aftershock after I had Stan and friends who had given birth beforehand had sort of said to me, yeah, we didn't want to say anything because 
we didn't want to freak you out and it is that thing where you 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 absolutely don't want to take away that wonderful anticipation and sense of joy from parents who are going through pregnancy um mm. but at the same time there is perhaps a, a better way of making them appreciate that you know the toughness as well as the the joy of having a child and how does postnatal depression differ from postpartum psychosis because that is something quite different isn't it it's very different i mean so it's certainly in terms of numbers maybe around one in ten mums will have postnatal depression postpartum psychosis is considerably more rare perhaps one in a thousand maybe even one in one in two thousand it is rare um postnatal depression is about it is about the mood depression isn't just about being about being sad we need to address that but it can be about tearfulness it can be about sadness it's also about a lack of motivation to do those things you would normally like to be doing it's about uh, problems of concentration problems with sleep problems with appetite thoughts of death and dying uh, it's it's about low self-worth and guilt and many other things like that. Postpartum psychosis is essentially any psychotic condition, typically schizophrenia or the more extreme forms of bipolar disorder in the manic stages, is a lot more to do with sudden changes in the way a person understands that their reality around them. There can be some mood elements as well, but it's mostly to do with that understanding reality, what they see, what they hear, what they feel, their belief system and all that sort of thing. So what can often happen with a mum who has a postpartum psychosis, she will have delusional thoughts about who a baby is, where a baby's come from, maybe that a baby is being, it's not her baby, some other imposter has been put there or it's some um son of god or it's a it's it's a devil child or whatever she'll have thoughts that are perhaps not considered to be real she may also hear things that other people wouldn't hear um typically the voices that you you, you know you hear about or, or see things that other people cannot see so all of a sudden things become very confused for her and that's very serious because um because of the way in which she's thinking she could potentially become quite dangerous to herself and potentially to the baby as well because the thought process is just not rational now and we need to make sure that we look after her properly and get her the help that she needs then that must be incredibly distressing for for everybody involved you know the partners or family friends but especially for the the mum herself that's yeah. you know incredibly frightening and again yeah. it's an illness it's not something that you wish upon yourself mm. and for anybody listening I would recommend the zombie mums podcast by Laura Dockrill. Laura talks very eloquently about her own experience of postpartum psychosis. Quite often people think postnatal depression means you want to harm your baby and that isn't the case am I right in no. saying? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we could mention at this stage, as we're on all these conditions, I think it's worth mentioning maternal OCD as well, because when we consider what OCD is, obsessive compulsive disorder, the obsessions are about intrusive thoughts that just won't go away. It's, it, it, it's this nagging thought that you, whatever you do, you simply can't get it out of your head. And what a person will do if they've got these intrusive thoughts, so we'll try and engage in some kind of activity, if you like the compulsion, to try and make that go away. That's OCD. When it's with a mum for maternal OCD, those intrusive thoughts almost exclusively focus on the safety of that child. Now, every mum will feel that it's her job to keep her child safe. But a mum who's going through maternal OCD will suddenly it will become so intrusive, so unremitting that you'll feel that every single thing that needs to happen is about the safety of that child. So the um, acts that she will engage in to keep that baby so, uh, safe will become disproportionate and very, very time consuming. But crucially, the mum will have these fears that she's going to harm her baby. She's not, but she feels that she is going to harm her baby. So she'll go to excessive um, 
extremes to try and make sure that doesn't happen. And that is deeply, deeply distressing. She's not, you know, she's scared to tell someone I'm thinking of hurting my baby because she think the baby would be taken away. But anyone who understands maternal OCD knows that she's not going to hurt the baby. We just need to reassure her that her thoughts are the things we need to tackle, not the actions. And I think that's something I would absolutely love to explore in a future episode, because I think that deserves a, um, a full discussion on its own as a topic. So what about the, the families and friends or the partners if the, the person affected by postnatal depression is lucky enough to be in a partnership? What would you say to them if they're struggling to A, understand and B, know what to do for the best to help their loved one? This is one of the things that's so improved in the last few years. And if we're looking at typical partners, we can look at other forms of partners later on. But if we focus just on the, on, on the fathers and, and male partners, um, you know, there was a time when if he was confronted with his wife partner becoming depressed or psychotic, um, they, he would have absolutely no idea what he could do. Um, he, he one of the typical male things to do is to try and fix it being practical yeah go and buy her a new car take her on holiday buy her loads of things that's not what she wants actually when it's postnatal depression the, the first thing she wants is a hug or an understanding or come with me to the doctor or understand what i'm going through or be patient with me or cry with me or whatever um so we, we needed to give those those men better toolkits about what to do about opening up about allowing his partner to to have those conversations to be aware of what services are around about what the impact might be on him what postnatal depression is what postpartum psychosis is some education and some toolkits about reassurance that you know this isn't something she's doing deliberately it's not something he's done it's something they can work on together and if they work on it together then they're going to get through this obviously every family is different and every circumstance is different but in terms of my own relationship with my husband that was it you know just having him say it's okay and as you say like a a, a hug or a cuddle rather than you know man up or you've got nothing to mm. feel sad about we've got a beautiful baby boy which was perhaps mm. his reaction at the very beginning because he didn't understand it's an illness mm. and I think I think it is important as well to to emphasize to people that there are also practical ways you can help yeah. especially just yeah. in terms of taking the burden of cooking or cleaning mm. or taking yeah. the baby out for a walk if if mum yeah. is happy about that I mean it's funny because sometimes that thing of you know if somebody takes the baby out to the park to give you a break I know that when my husband used to do that and it was wonderful for him to spend that time with with our baby and it gave me a break but it also then made me feel redundant that I mm they could do without me and I wasn't needed so that felt a bit conflicting to, to me yeah yeah I, th I, th I think it's again it's the thing that you talk about to each other and yes of course there's some practical stuff one of the things I, I, I think is wonderful you were asking me earlier about you know my own parenthood and being a grandparent one of the things I've noticed about all of my son-in-laws, they're so hands-on. They're wonderful. It's not just about changing the nappies and being there. They're absolutely about sharing and about doing the cooking, about cleaning around, about keeping, you know, trying to keep things tidy, all that sort of thing. I think that's just what blokes do more of now than they ever did before, which is wonderful. And they're in the, uh, more often than not, they're actually present at the birth. But it's also about not assuming that, oh, I know, if I just take the baby out of the way, she'll be okay for a bit, get her some sleep. But you're right. It's about asking her, what would you like me to do right now? And just be, you know, it might be just to be there um, or just to be a listening ear. And I mean listen, not just nod and think, yeah, I know, I know. To truly listen. The last thing you would do if, if, if your partner says to you, I'm really tired, the father to say, yes, yeah, so am I. It's not what she wants to hear. It's, it's about being there and, and trying to help her through that. 
Do you think there's a relationship between sleep deprivation and mental health? Oh, without question. I think, um, well, first of all, um, poor sleep is, is, is one of the um, sort of diagnostic criteria for depression. So there's, there's going to be an element of sleep problems there anyway because it's going to deplete the resources and in fact my own PhD way before I came into parenting and all of that and postnatal depression my own PhD was about relationship between poor sleep and mental health and it's so strong um, so th there's no question about that but also when we look at um, postpartum psychosis is one of the biggest factors so often a, a, a preceding factor to postpartum psychosis is women with a history of bipolar disorder or, or mood fluctuations in that way. So that, that increases that trigger. Then there com comes maybe a, a, a traumatic birth, an unexpected birth, complication, whatever it might be, and then she can't sleep. And it's those periods of time, maybe day or so, three days of not being able to sleep that can trigger a truly... Um, dangerous psychosis so sleep is huge yeah I remember how badly it affected my my moods and my ability to cope and I just wanted to say to anybody listening who is who feels guilty the, the typical mum guilt if they are tired and feel they need to rest while their baby's asleep rather than doing the washing doing the washing up cleaning the house cooking what Andy's just described hopefully tells you that getting rest is absolutely crucial, not just for you, but mm. for the family. So if anybody's mm. making you feel bad about not keeping the house clean, let them listen to this because you taking care of yourself and getting rest is really important. And if you struggle to sleep, because I know I developed insomnia because I, I developed a fear of going to sleep especially during the day, I just couldn't do it because I was worried something would happen to Stan because I wasn't in control when I was asleep. That actually just resting can often be as good as sleeping. So don't beat yourself up if you can't sleep. And there is a, a loving kindness meditation as one bonus episode of, of Blue Mum Days that I hope will help you to relax, even if you can't sleep and, and just help you to Turn off those intrusive thoughts and, and just be in the moment for, you know, 10 to 15 minutes, whatever you can manage. Mm. And this takes us on to like fathers, because I know we were talking mm. about fathers who are the partners, but fathers can also get postnatal depression. Yeah. And you've okay. done a lot of work in this area with with Mark Williams, haven't you? I have. I mean, uh, for me, there's there's uh, there's three key things with fathers. We we kind of covered some of it. What the fathers, what kind of support fathers do fathers need to help his partner should she develop a mental health problem, and 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 indeed the impact it can have on him. The other thing is some fathers will develop mental health problems independently, postnatally, and what sort of support and information can we give the fathers for that? And the other thing. I've done a lot of work with is the fathers who are in that birthing room when when there is a very traumatic incident and the impact it has on him uh, and the information support and all of that so I've done so those are areas that I've done work on in terms of research and improving services and about getting the awareness out there and and you know we are considerably further forward than we were so several years ago I mean I know you've spoken to Mark you've spoken to to one or two other people as well in in this field who, who've experienced these things um, but it wasn't that long ago when fathers were completely overlooked and we were screaming for the fact that fathers need to be screened for their mental health and through campaigning and through evidence, I mean, often people say, well, what's research all about? But research is about getting that evidence and using that evidence to make a change. And I was among some people right across the country who were doing similar sort of work that actually presented the evidence to NHS England. And they used that evidence to say, you know what, we will screen fathers. For their mental health now that's been stalled a little bit by by covid but the premise is there the door is have been opened some fathers in certain conditions 
will now be screened for their mental health and get that support that they need. So it's huge. Do you think early intervention for both mums and dads is the key? I think it is. And it's also about that recognition because you, you're saying about manning up early. And, and yeah, I mean, it's true, uh, certainly of, of, of men who, who encounter their, their partner issue. She goes through a problem. He, he, he'll try and be the rock and try to uh, man up about it. But it's also about his own mental health as well. And it's once he starts encountering some of these problems about his emotions and all of these sorts of things, he will feel that he hasn't got the legitimate right to start speaking about these things because that's not what men do. But men do need to do it. His mood may change after baby's been born. At the end of the day, on that moment, if he particularly is there in the birthing room, the moment that child's born the levels of testosterone have been shown to drop dramatically all of a sudden he's opening himself up to emotions that he never experienced before so that can have an impact but also there's a there's a loss of identity in many ways there's the um negotiating becoming a father the sudden changes of responsibility the changes of relationship with his partner his his own tiredness there's so many things that can dramatically change the way he will feel his emotions and all that so it's no wonder that it can be different that he he could develop what could be considered to be similar to postnatal pressure mm. It's very similar. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing speaking to people like Elliot Ray and, and Mark Williams. And there's mm. this, this expectation of dads that after, you know, four or five days, you're back at work. And, you know, you might have a little bit of leeway for the first couple of days while everybody remembers that you're a new parent and that you've probably had no sleep. And then you're sort of expected to get on with your work as you normally would that's a lot of it that is where the problem lies and we could add to that as well you know the fathers who have encountered a traumatic birth who's watched his partner go through um what could have been potentially life-threatening or, or certainly a, a significant um impact on her health and and the baby's health and sometimes the baby's taken off into a neonatal unit and yet he's gone back to work um, and you're absolutely right. It's after a few days, well, well done, pat on the head, you've, you're a daddy now, without actually beginning to consider the impact it might have had. And also what's really crucial here is the mental health impact of something like that can actually be delayed. So the true impact, the true sort of almost traumatic response to all of this can often be weeks, months down the line when he's way back at work. We need a lot more in the workplace to, to be more vigilant to new fathers that they are properly catered for, if you like. And I, th I think hopefully one of the more positive things to come out of COVID is more acceptance and uh, understanding of mental health issues in the workplace and I really hope that the greater recognition that's given to employees emotional well-being is something that is carried forward after well yeah. if there is an after to the pandemic it's two years in now yeah so what would you like to see what is the the key thing that you really are fighting for at the moment there's several things and we mentioned before about you know all the work that's been done within the nhs and it's wonderful i mean in england at least you know where whereas we didn't have uh, maybe less than a quarter of the country um had mother and baby units in england and through campaigning now virtually every locality in england's got one and a, and a community service scotland northern ireland wales have still got a long way to go on that but my priority now is more focusing on that community side of things because all too often um, there are the parents, particularly mums, may not be so unwell that she needs that intensive um, care. And if she's referred and refused or not referred because it's not considered that she's unwell enough, should be pushed back into the community because she doesn't need that intense support, but she needs support. And because if she doesn't get that support, the problems could just simply escalate. So we need a lot more community stuff. We need more charities. We need more third sector organizations. We need spin-offs from the, from the NHS systems to make sure mother is properly supported. These are the mums 
the perhaps who are not so unwell, but also the mums who may have already been in a mother and baby unit and then a, a, a sort of discharge into the community, making sure they've got the support. We need a lot more um, of those services to make sure we keep mum well and similarly for fathers. But do, do you feel hopeful? Do you feel we're moving in the right direction? I do. I think it, it I mean, it's difficult to know. I and mean, we the successes we got um, in moving this forward in, in both in terms of mother and baby units and money that was put into that and the recognition that fathers need to be catered for too was pre-COVID. Now, how the, the financial impact of COVID is going to have a, an influence on this government and governments to come for some time, we shall see. But, you know, at the end of the day, we can demonstrate that simply by investing in perinatal mental health, you're actually saving the economy mon money because, you know, the cost of someone continuing to be unwell and not being productive is far greater than investing in the first place now what we've done for mums over the last few years is wonderful what we've done for fathers is wonderful but we've also got to um, rethink the way we think the family because we're still way too focused on the typical binary parent and that's it, not the way it is these days and we need to start focusing more on less traditional families. We need to look at lesbian couples. We need to look at um, gay couples. We need to look at trans transgender couples and all these differences. I'm actually starting some work now with a student of mine asking same-sex couples, lesbian couples, about their experience of birth trauma. So one of the mums is the gestational parent her partner her wife may be in the room watching that go on what kind of support does mm. she get probably not at all we're working on that we, that sounds so sorry. important and it's something i've yeah. discussed with in another upcoming episode i i speak to aj silver of, of the queer birth club exactly about these these things because again there's a whole other area of pressures that are put on that that family setup and also discrimination or lack of understanding and the, the way that uh, same-sex couples or trans couples are treated or can be treated or, you know, even regarded by society as not being proper parents, that can have such a damaging effect. Yes, it can. It absolutely can. And I think we need much more recognition of that. And I think what we need to build into services, whether they be NHS, charity is that we we need better training to understand what how it might be different for some people put you to use the the old um, sort of gandhi thing walk a mile in my shoes try to understand for one moment what it's like for an individual who comes from a marginalized society to to be, become a parent and the impact it's having on them and then, of course, this whole thing, again, is that a lot of what we do in this country is based on Western um, idealized views of parenting and mental health. And we're multicultural society, and it doesn't necessarily fit with our BAME and BME communities and whatever else we call it these days to understand how that might need to be different for our different cultures and communities. Absolutely. And there's there's a a lot of sort of very worrying statistics in terms of the experience of, of black and minority ethnic mums and again sort of their level of perinatal care mm. I believe one in four black mums are more likely to die in childbirth um, which mm. is horrific absolutely horrific and again I'm speaking to Sandra Igwe and Christina Brown and Dr. Oreo and Abanjo about these topics because again it needs proper investigation and discussion but I think what you were saying, again, about the financial cost is also really important. And it's something that I would argue with employers that we need to be better at welcoming parents back into the workplace and especially mums mm -hmm. returning after maternity leave with understanding, because the more support you offer them early on stops financial costs and you know lack of productivity or losing them from the workplace and the talent drain that that involves further down the line. And that also goes in terms of the, the children's mental health pandemic in the country. 
because mm. that's absolutely staggering, especially since COVID. But it was already quite worrying. And again, the sooner we can improve uh, support for children early on, and if you go upstream, that's helping support the parents. So the sooner you help the parents and support the parents as part of the whole family, you're also benefiting the children further down the line. So it it all makes sense to invest in, in this early intervention and support. Absolutely. Do you have any final messages for, for people who are concerned about a loved one or who are worried about themselves but scared of coming forward and, and seeking help? I think it's it's always about reassurance. And I think when you recognize, and you know your loved one, you know their their mood and you know their personality, you know the way they normally function and they change. If their mood has changed, if their attention has changed, if their thoughts are not quite the same as they might normally be, or they're saying things that seem a little bit odd, if you like, then don't be afraid to have that question to ask that question and when you do ask that question always ask it twice because i think it's important when you first ask someone are you okay and oh yeah 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 i'm fine no no are you okay and and often it's that second time that you'll get that answer and then once that person's opened up then you're on the road to be able to okay well what can we do what are we going to do to try and help you through this? Would you like me to come to a GP with you? Would you like me to investigate what's available online? Should we do this together? It's easier together. And so it starts with that conversation. And I, I, I think I'd, and, and the other thing I'd say is when you do ask that question and when you do get your answer, listen. Don't think, well, I've done my bit. They're, they're talking now. Listen and pick up, repeat some of the things that they've said. So were well, you telling me that you're, you're feeling very disjointed at the moment? Okay, well, what can we do about that? So repeat some of those things back to show that you've actively listened. And you're not expected to fix it necessarily. No. It's about understanding and I'd say listen without judgment as well. Exactly. Yeah. And to anybody that's frightened of getting help, please, please go speak to somebody, speak to your partner if you feel you can, if you have a partner, speak to a friend, speak to your GP, or there is a whole host of support listed in the show notes with every episode of Blue Mondays because you are not alone and you won't always feel like this. And the quicker you can get some help, the quicker you will recover, believe me, and you will, you will get better. You won't be like this forever. Thank you, Andy. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you and uh, excited to see what happens next with your research and um, I'm sure we'll have you back at another point it'd be fantastic to do a Q&A or something with you if, if you're willing I'd love to do that I'd be very willing thank you very much brilliant thank you if you enjoy this episode of Blue Mondays please rate and subscribe it only takes a minute but it genuinely makes a difference to how many people can find it which means helping more parents in need. Thank you.